Hi, I'm Jay Goldman. And I'm Rahaf Harfouche. And this is Banterful, where we get together virtually and chat about the really important things that aren't getting enough talk about them. So today we are going back to an oldie but goodie, COVID-19, but... I think some of the things that we've been talking about are going to be quite relevant for a lot of people because now we've been in the situation uh, for a long enough period of time that many of us have to make real decisions about what the next several months of our lives are going to look like on a personal but also on a professional level. I think everybody is struggling with not having a crystal ball here. You're looking for parallels that you can try to use as predictors of what the future is going to look like. So is the Spanish influenza a useful predictor of what this is going to look like? Maybe, but it was a very different world, very different medicine, healthcare, understanding of viruses. So probably not just on the surface, a useful predictor. And so because we are in, I think the word that has probably been the most abused this year, unprecedented times, (laughs) it is difficult to know what's going to happen next. Should I be making plans for another two months of quarantine? Or is there going to be a terrible second wave and I'm really looking at another year of this? Do we have to wait for 12 months for a vaccine or 18 months for a vaccine or two years for a vaccine? Even once there's a vaccine that's actually been proven, how long is it going to take to manufacture it and distribute it at significant enough volumes that it's able to achieve a high enough rate of immunization that it's going to make a significant impact? And is the vaccine going to vaccinate against all strains or just the strains that we knew about when we started developing this type? I mean, I think... I get really frustrated when people are trying to predict the future long-term because I think, and you and I were talking about this before, we're seeing there have to be a couple of things that need to take place before we have any sense of what the future is going to look like. And that, unfortunately for us, is the resurgence of a second wave and then the government response and then what happens afterwards. And as people called it the hammer and the dance, I think that we need to go through a full cycle because lockdown for many people was this like abnormal, surreal time where it didn't feel like real life. And now it's like we're easing lockdown measures, but the real test is on its way. The real test is when the virus, and I don't know to what extent, but when the virus comes back and when it comes back with a vengeance and when healthcare systems are overloaded again and when businesses that wanted to open have to close again, maybe because not the government told them to, but because their workers are sick and uh, customers aren't coming in the door because no one feels safe, that's when we'll get the real parameters of what we're dealing with and what we're going to have to do in order to adapt. So for anyone who didn't know the term, the hammer and the dance, and I certainly didn't before I read about it, uh, the article that I read was a medium post by, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, Thomas Pueo about the hammer and the dance. And it talked about how in uh, epidemiological terms, the immediate response to a crisis like this is known as the hammer. It's when you have to go into the most hardcore version of lockdown to prevent the initial spread. And then you get into a period known as the dance, which is where you have ongoing resurgences and you have to deal with those on an ongoing basis. So it might become rolling periods of lockdown or a response that has to continue to change over time as the virus mutates, as immunizations come out, all of those sorts of things. And so, yeah, I think that the challenge for everybody right now is what does it mean 
to start to ease some of these hammer restrictions so that we can get into the dance, if you want to think of it that way. And at some point, you start to have to calculate the economic harm that this is creating versus the health risk that it's creating. And so you start to get into some calculations that really we're not well equipped to do, I think, as humans. And they are things like what is the value of a human life? And what is the value of a human life for somebody who is 70 years old versus somebody who is 30 years old? And for a parent versus somebody who isn't a parent? And this is something that we have done as a human race in the form of things like actuarial tables for insurance companies, where they have long calculated the value of something like what happens if I lose my left arm versus my right arm in an industrial accident and I'm right handed? What should the insurance payout be. It's a sort of grim calculus that I, I'm, I definitely wouldn't want to have to do. But we are starting to get to the point of this where there is lasting permanent economic harm that is happening. It is going to get significantly worse if we don't deal with it. And so we are getting to the point where politicians have to start to calculate. If I knew that this decision was going to cost five lives, but was going to return $50 to the economy, is that the right decision to make? And it requires a certain bravery in making it that I fear that our, our modern politicians lack. I think if you go back to somebody like Winston Churchill, who obviously had his faults, but who also managed to get Great Britain, and I would argue maybe the Western world through World War II, had to make very difficult decisions like do we acknowledge that we have broken the Nazis code and that's how we know they're going to bomb these towns. And so we evacuate them and save lives, but let on that we have now cracked the code and put our overall war effort at risk. And the term, the good of the many versus the good of the few came from those calculations in which they did allow some English towns very sadly to get bombed because it allowed them to win the overall war. We're now down to that point is now the good of the many preventing a second wave and keeping people healthy and preventing those deaths? Or are we at the point where the good of the many is reopening the economy so that people can get out and work and they can pay their rent and their mortgages and they can put food on their table for their families? But I think that, I think you, you've hit at the heart of the issue, which is in order to make these types of decisions, whether on a personal, professional, or political level, you have to have a good understanding of the risks that you're taking. And I don't think anybody can accurately assess the risk of any of these decisions. We don't actually know what the risk is going to be because everything we know about this virus is constantly changing and evolving. So I can't tell you, oh, well, we know that this has a, you know, X mortality rate and this is what the death rate is going to be because literally the symptoms that were presenting 30 days ago are now being like, there are new symptoms that are being added to that list. So suddenly we're seeing things that didn't exist six, six months ago, three months ago, that they didn't exist before. So our expansion of who's at risk how vulnerable they are, how intense their response are, like we don't know any of that. So it is impossible. There are too many unsolved variables in this equation for us to be able to accurately say this will be the cost of life if we open up the economy or not. And the other thing that nobody really wants to say is that we all seem to think that there is a good option out there. Like if we open up the economy, that's going to be the right option. When in reality, as you and I have said multiple times before, we're talking about two really horrible options. 
And let's say you don't open up the economy. Okay, economic devastation. Let's say you do open up the economy. Well, eventually the virus is going to come back. People are going to die. But that's also going to lead to economic devastation. I was talking to somebody that said, um, I was talking to somebody online a couple of days ago, and they were saying that in their office, they have like a warehouse. And in their warehouse, they had a, a COVID they had three people that had COVID and one of those people is now being intubated and they don't know if that person is going to make it. And what that's doing on morale and what that's doing on everybody else that is now saying, okay, well, do I have to come to work or do I have to risk my life? And people are quitting. So there's, so I don't think we can escape the economic devastation. What if you're a restaurant and you open up your restaurant, but a, either your staff gets sick and you can't run the business or B, consumers don't feel like it's safe enough that they're going to take that chance. Same goes for schools. So I think the thing that we don't want to face because it's really horrible is there's no way out of this. It's going to be really intense and really difficult for the foreseeable future. And we'd much rather in our, in our sort of la-la land be like, well, because I don't see it and feel it right now, I'm just going to push for anything that's going to take me back to what I used to know, instead of saying, I should pay attention to science and start thinking about how I can adapt and evolve and keep myself safe and mitigate as much of this unknown as I possibly can. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of the uh, the old expression from a sales perspective, it's very easy to sell people painkillers. It's very difficult to sell them vitamins. We are generally <laughs> bad at the sort of predictive what's going to be good for me in the future. It's why people don't save for retirement because it is hard to envision yourself at retirement age needing money. It's much easier to just spend money on the stuff that makes you feel good today. And I think in a lot of cases, what's become painful for people is the economic impact, especially for people who aren't in a position where they're still making their regular income, maybe, you know, dual income in their family, they're still exactly the same financially as they were before, but actually many of their costs have gone away because they're not traveling, they're not going out of the house, they're not going to restaurants, they're really just buying groceries and basic house supplies. So actually in some ways they are arguably in a better financial position than they were before this started. And then you have lots and lots of people who are actually right on the brink of economic devastation if they're not already there. They have no income at all. One or both of the incomes in their household have disappeared. They can't pay rent. They can't put food on the table. You are into uh, you know, rent strikes and people protesting. You are into evictions being banned by local governments, but only while this lasts. And in between, you're still accumulating rent due to landlords. So now the thing that has become painful for a lot of people is the economic side, and that's what they're focused on. And it seems like vitamins to talk about a second wave and future health problems when you are looking at your hungry kids and you can't feed them. And that's where we're at now is the more painful piece of this has become the economic piece. I do think we're going to see some long-term follow-on effects of that. Uh, what happens when people don't pay rent to their landlords. And everybody, I think in this, the, the evil landlord is such the stereotype, but we all sort of think like, ah, poor landlords, who cares if people don't pay their rent? But what happens when people don't pay their rent is landlords lose their mortgages. And then the buildings disappear because the banks have to foreclose. And also, and probably even more damaging, they stop paying property taxes. And when they don't pay property taxes on large buildings, the municipalities run out of money. 
because that's one of the big sources of funding for them. And so your fire department and police department and all of roads and all of the other things that are paid for from those property taxes also start to fall apart. So the longer that this goes, it's not just that landlords lose out on their revenue stream, it's that the whole economic system is based on people paying rent. And if they stop paying rent, then you have much bigger longer term damage than just people who get evicted and people getting evicted is very sad, but it's only a part of a much larger, very complex ecosystem that's all connected together. And this is why like my brain keeps spinning because it's just like, you see so many people that are in need, you see so much of this pain and you, and then you think to yourself, well, of course, feeding your kids isn't essential. And of course we should do everything we can to help it. And I think this has helped them. And this is why I'm not by any means saying, well, we should lock down indefinitely. And I'm not by any means saying open up. Like I too, my brain is spinning being like, how can we help people through this? Because I, I, I just don't know. I don't have any of the answers. I know that, you know, communities have been stepping up. I know that people have been stepping up. I was actually reading that like during the great depression, um, they saw the rise of what was called like penny restaurants. I don't know if you heard of these, but it was like these restaurants where everything on the menu was like a penny as a way to create an opportunity for people to eat in a dignified way instead of having to go and stand in line at like the food bank. So I'm like, there has to be a way, like there's so much money that exists, you know, and not to point fingers at, you know, who the person who's potentially going to be the world's first trillionaire, but it's like, where are all these like technocrats in all of this? Like where, where are the Amazon? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And I also don't want to like get into this hyper politicized debate about like, the, you know, the money delivery and, drones. Um, where you know, are the like, Amazon money <laughs> delivery drones? <laughs> Prime is just going to start sending you like checks. Right. But, um, but, but I don't know, but it's like, it seems really frustrating to me that there are people that are and businesses that are thriving and there are businesses that are doing quite well, but we almost need like a rethinking of the ecosystem of what communities look like and what cities look like, because at some point, if nobody can afford Amazon things, do you know what I mean? Like at some point, if the workers can't come to work, like we're all kind of interlinked in the system and people, we keep trying to like spot treat it. And I, I just, the sad thing that I keep trying to avoid, but that I think is going to happen is that we're going to see these difficult situations. I think there's an opportunity here for the people who can to help and to, 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 you know, support people as best as they could. But much like with the great depression, I think there are some things that are unavoidable, not because of COVID, but because of the stresses on a system that was designed in a very specific way that COVID has just sort of amplified, right? Like in many cases, the lack of a social, uh, a, a social net, a lack of uh, access to healthcare, access to affordable education, like all these sorts of things in certain countries. And I'm talking about the US because right now they're grappling with so many cases like the, what the economic devastation, the people that are suffering, I saw, I was reading a bunch of articles um, yesterday about people who, uh, because of the economic instability, have lost their jobs and can no longer afford the insulin for their diabetes and who have died. Like, is that a COVID adjacent death? And so I just think like, there's no way around it. There's no fix here. We're going to see 
probably some really dark economic times that is going to turn COVID, as you and I have also said, into a, a very much class divide. Because if you have the privilege, as you and I do, to have jobs you can do remotely and to be able to live at home and not have to go out, then you are going to be protected in a way that like essential workers and people that are more vulnerable aren't. And so like, where's our responsibility and what can we do, if anything? Yeah, the class divide piece of this is is getting painfully highlighted. I think many years of U.S. policy that have taken away safety nets is also getting very starkly highlighted, especially when you compare them to other similar Western countries who haven't had the same level of devastation um, and and just their willingness to step in at the beginning and do something about this. Uh, and it's definitely highlighting some governments that have done an outstanding job of managing the response versus others who haven't. I think the experiment of Sweden that everybody keeps sort of looking at where they chose not to go into lockdown in the same way, and there were restrictions, but Swedish, and, and the articles that I've read about this really point to a high degree of societal trust among Swedes as the reason why it has worked at all. It wouldn't have worked in other countries where you didn't have the same level of trust. Everybody sort of took on their social responsibility and said, okay, yes, I have to take steps to keep myself and my family safe. And if we all do that together, then it will result in this disease being managed. And then we don't have to have the same economic lockdown as other places. I think the danger, though, in all of these comparisons, whether we're looking at what devastation has happened in the US or whether Sweden's managed to stay safe or how South Korea was able to contain or whatever you're looking at, you're taking a bunch of numbers out of context. And you're saying, oh, well, maybe other countries should have done what Sweden did. But other countries doing the same thing wouldn't have had the same result. You wouldn't have had the same societal trust that it was built on. so back to the same point you made at the beginning, we don't know what we don't know. And what we don't know right now is most of this, but we still have to figure out plans for how we individually respond to this and how we all move forward together and what steps should be put in place. And there are there are some really long lasting impacts of this that we haven't even really begun to understand. So I was, as an example, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually a high school principal And we were talking about how there is a a cohort right now of, let's say, mid to late 20-year-olds who aren't dating right now because they can't. There isn't really dating. And the longer that this period goes, the longer that cohort goes without actually meeting the people that they would have ended up marrying, settling down, and having kids with. So you've got a gap where it's been artificially inserted into kind of the regular you know, average timeline of life. So that means that after we come out of this quarantine, however long it lasts and second waves and everything else, they are all going to go out and now meet the person and then continue on that regular timeline, but with an artificially introduced, whatever it ends up being, let's call it a year into that. That means that in about 10 years from now, there's going to be a grade one class that is missing most of the class because they just mm. were never born. There was a period of time where people just didn't end up hooking up, getting married, having kids. So we're going to have like a 10-year-long strange horizon on some of these things. We just can't even begin to understand what that's going to look like until we actually get there. It's going to be the the COVID cohort that is missing from a whole year of society. I have a friend that works with little kids 
and she was saying that they're noticing um, developmental problems because kids, especially before they speak, really rely on uh, their facial expressions. That's how they read. They learn to read faces. And then you're having people with PPE, with protective equipment. And what is that doing to their emotional and mental kind of development again? And, you know, in the 2008 recession, there was this concept that was studied that's called economic scarring that says that even though in, in economic terms, like with the 2008 financial crisis, the economy was, you know, recovered in June 2009, that the impacts of a lot of those decisions that happened during that one year could be felt for decades on. For example, if you were a household um, who suddenly couldn't afford to send your kid to a four-year college, so they went to a two-year community college, that limited that generation's like or that that kid's prosperity um if you if you graduated into a job where nobody was asking for more money and you weren't able to negotiate a high salary uh compared to statistically what had happened before then that determined your lifetime earnings so not only are we seeing this type from the economic phase that's the one the sort of two two punch the two for one punch or the two for one is that the expression I what is the expression? I don't think that's the expression. The I don't think anybody, wants, yeah, I don't think anybody wants two for one <laughs> punches. I would like, it's a one-two punch. There we go. There we go. Sports and such. Um, the the one-two punch is, uh, is the fact that this time we have this economic devastation, but we also have the psychological impact of such a deep fear and such a deep sense of like psychological trauma around the fear that's happening. Like who knows what that's going to do in terms of our ability to be creative, our ability to take risks, our ability to do the things that we normally do. Like we're, we don't even know because we've never really had a global population that was kind of going through this like really scary, uncertain time together collectively mm -hmm. and consuming information about it and reading posts about it and zooming about it. Um, this is yeah, what does it, really what does it do to people to have spent a few months in a deeply anxious state and do you recover from that and just go back to being non-anxious or has it really permanently in some way changed you? I think actually the, the point about the kids, it's not just the uh, masks and the PPE and the impact that that has, but what does it do? I have a, a few friends who have very young children or even have had babies that are born in this time those kids will have gone through a period of quarantine with very little social exposure. And so what does that do? We don't actually know the answer to that. It's a, a, an unknown. What happens if you take an entire cohort of kids and their only social exposure is actually their parents and siblings. And that's the only people that they get any direct contact with. Um, you don't even get to meet your grandparents and, you know, and, and hug them and have them hold you until this is over. And so, yeah, there's so many things that are going to be, different coming out of this. Um, I was listening to an episode of 99% of Invisible, fantastic podcast. If you're not a fan, I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about uh, natural experiments that have been able to be done during this time because they're kind of a, an odd side effect of the lockdown. And so one of the examples that really stuck with me was studying whales in Alaska because there are so many cruise ships that go through Alaska in the summer when they put hydrophones, microphones into the water to listen to the, to the whales, they have to do it only in the hours when the cruise ships aren't around because the cruise ships make so much noise that they actually can't hear the whales. And they think that that has had an impact on the whales themselves. Because if you think about the analogy that they use is if you're having a conversation in a really crowded room, you have to talk louder and you use simpler terms, simpler words, because you 
you can be misheard. And so instead of the really complex nuanced conversation we might be having right now, you just result to like, hey, how are you? Because that's basically all you can do. And they think that that's what the whales are doing. But they've never been able to test this because the cruise ships are always there. There are no cruise ships right now. So they have actually will have ended up with some amount or maybe all of the summer with no cruise ships at all. And they're able to completely study for the first time in history the natural environment of these whales because there's nothing around to make noise. Those are kind of unexpected benefits of this. We can understand air pollution in a completely different way because the air pollution has disappeared from most of the major cities. What does that actually do? How long does recovery take? What's the impact of that? These are unexpected scientific benefits of this, but they kind of fall into that same category of really long-term impacts that we won't understand for a very long time. Okay, positive impacts though. Like I know that I was reading, I think it was a Bloomberg article um, about uh, uh, high tech workers in really expensive cities that are that are leaving because there's like no point in being expensive. This could be a boon for secondary cities that you know that that they, this can be an opportunity for people to access a labor market that before was quite geo restricted and now all of a sudden like this could benefit companies from all over the world who maybe uh, if you're working remotely before and now you can access like say silicon valley level engineers that are spread out like that could be great for your company and your products and also for the people this can be a, a good move to revitalize like small towns and smaller cities because um you know i know that for for myself like my husband and i we've left paris because if you can't enjoy the benefits of being in a city then all it is is a danger zone with a lot of high density and you're paying a lot of money for rent right so you know we're in a smaller town now and that's been a different a different rhythm so it could also be an opportunity for us to like redraw the lines around talent and give people that aren't in primary labor markets, talent markets, a shot, but also create sustainable lifestyles so that people don't have to pay like $4,000 in rent to live in a one bedroom in San Francisco and have like five roommates. So this I, could I was be just a thinking nice of San Francisco is the perfect example of, of what you're saying. Twitter just announced that they will not make people come back to the office ever. They're they're perfectly comfortable with people working from home. There are a lot of remote work advocates that have been shouting this from the rooftops for years and most people weren't listening to them. Um, folks like it's to stick within the tech sector, uh, Automatic who make WordPress have been a completely remote virtual company I think since the beginning. They experimented with having offices but I think they've gone back to an entirely virtual team. Um, Basecamp, the makers of Basecamp have been talking about this for a long time as well. So Twitter's now announced that everybody can remain virtual after this if they want to. They'll eventually be able to come back to the office if they want, but they're not going to make anybody do that. Now you look at San Francisco, and as you said, I think $4,000 is actually probably on the cheap side. People have been paying <laughs> crazy amounts of rent to live there because that's where you had to be if you wanted to work in the tech sector. So what does happen if you don't have to be there anymore? If you're perfectly capable of taking that awesome, highly paid job with a company like Twitter, but you can remain in the Midwest where you lived and grew up with your family, or you could choose to move to Bali and work from there because you're still making the same salary from Twitter, as long as you keep kind of, um, you know, Eastern, well, I guess not in Twitter's case, not Eastern Standard, but Pacific time, as long as you you kind of set your workday around that, you're welcome to work from anywhere in the world. I think it does have a, a really big impact and a shift for people. And that's another one of those long-term things. We're just going to have to see how that plays out and how it impacts people's lives. In a way, this is all about the forced 
adoption of digital technology that we've just seen play out in the most compressed possible timeline, basically since early March to the end of March, we saw every company in the world have to radically accept digital technologies that they've been pushing back on and virtual work and a bunch of other things that they've been pushing back on for years. And the proof point has ended up being that people seem to really prefer it in a lot of ways. There's no commute. There's no, um, you know, getting to the office. You don't lose time in all of that. And you end up arguably with a longer workday, maybe a work-life balance issue. But, uh, but yeah, and, and I can say for ourselves, we've, uh, at Sensei Labs, we've seen our team be very productive in this time. We've spent a lot of time on emotional support to make sure people are okay with working from home. But, but so far, it's been successful for us as a business. I do wonder, though, about like the social aspect of it. Like I was speaking to somebody the other day about how do you design for a remote workforce engagement because a lot of the real bonding activities happen on company time but not necessarily on company business right it's when you're like chatting in the break room or whether you're you know a couple of minutes after the meeting or before the meeting or if there's a bit of downtime and you're talking about what you watch and what you read and what you've seen I mean some of the people that I um, have been the closest to have been people that I've met through work and what are we doing by if we don't spend that same amount of time developing that network work because with work from home I think one of the drawbacks is that you can't just like book a zoom call for an hour and just chat with your colleague even though you might have been able to have a 35 minute chat if you know depending on your office at some point and so it's like should companies be allowing people to be to have like breaks together should they be um, having team chats together when it's not about business stuff and it's not going to be a 40 person zoom call, but you know, like how are we going to replicate these bonds that build collaborative teams? Because if everyone's working from home and everyone's staying at home and then it's like, if you're not really getting a chance to know people and please don't say Slack because like a Slack chat is just not going to replace the fun that you have when you realize that like your coworker reads the same books as you or you or watches the same show as you. And then you come back to the office and you're like, did you see the episode? Like those are the best parts of, colleagues there's also a lot of terrible parts about colleagues but like i'm how can we (laughs) you know we all know why is it that every office has somebody that steals people's food i don't know but you know the point is is like what can we do to design those types of human-centric interactions into all of these technologies that we're using Yeah, you can. You have to be more intentional about it. The nice thing about being in person is they happen accidentally. You can certainly design, you know, we uh, in the past uh, have used a Slack bot called Donut that pairs people up for coffees randomly every week. And you can still do things like that when you're remote. You just have your coffee Mm -hmm. over Zoom instead. Uh, We have a standing 4.45 to 5 p.m. Everybody drop in if you'd like. Um, video chat. And so every day, a different random group of people will come in and hang out for 15 minutes and just kind of catch up on the day and how it was going. It's just a nice chance to see people. Sometimes we pick a theme for it and everybody changes their virtual background and stuff. I think you you can be intentional about these things in a way that maybe you didn't have to be before because they just naturally happen when people were in the office. Although to that point, we used Donut when we were in the office to pair people up for random coffees and then they went and grabbed a coffee together. So I guess we were still maybe being intentional about it then as well. But I, yeah, I think that uh, in the end, this is really, unfortunately, as much as we would all like a crystal ball, as we started this off by saying, 
Uh, we're going to have to wait and see on some of this. And, and really it's pointing to adaptiveness and resiliency as mm. some of the most important traits, not just as entrepreneurs and business owners, but as individuals, the ability to roll with this as it continues to change and adapt and to make new plans and figure things out as we're going is critically important through this. And so I hope that everybody out there listening to this is working on their resiliency and adaptiveness. And maybe uh, for another episode, we can actually dive into the question being like, what does it mean to be resilient? And what does that actually look like in terms of mindset, skill sets, um, and and that type of thing? Because I know that's been something that's been on my mind. It's one thing to be able to tell people, well, be resilient, be adaptive, but it's like, okay, how? What is the first step? What can we do to kind of start shifting our thinking? I know for me, for example, I've really reduced my yearly plan into just like these 90-day reoccurring on this, you know, just, I've really shortened it because right now things are changing so much that you can't predict for longer than that. And so what does that mean? And what are other things people are doing? I think that'd be a really cool subject. Yeah, absolutely. We will cover that on an upcoming episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, this has been Banterful. I'm Jay Goldman. And I'm Rahaf. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>